0: privilege and an honor to be here. Thank you um, for the support and the prayers. This uh, fall will mark the 20th anniversary of Belmont RUF, and we've been doing that ministry. Well, Wendy took her a couple years to decide she wanted to be my wife and then be part of it, uh, but this is the 20th anniversary, and that's a pretty remarkable thing to think that the, that the PCA and National Presbytery said we think Belmont University is an important place to have a ministry, and I thank you for that because I think it is too. Let's um, read this text. It's in Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. It's in your uh, worship program. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility... So as Paul said, I work the ministry of RUF and Belmont University is a historically Christian university. Uh, These days they would say that they have a Baptist heritage and that they're an ecumenical Christian university. It's a complicated story. You know, what does that actually mean? I won't get into that. But it does mean this, that many of the students that we come into contact there have a church background. I wouldn't say they're all Christians by any means. Matter of fact, The church background has probably moved some of them away from the church. Um, But many of them have sort of a basic understanding of Christianity, or at least they think they do. But one of the things that's interesting when you do RUF, and Paul, I don't know if he's told you, but he used to do RUF as well. Um, We we were together in that ministry for a number of years. But when when you do RUF, you often will get a call maybe from a parent or a youth pastor you know, my student is there. I would love for you to, to meet with them, to get to know them a little bit. Sometimes the students seek you out. And I would found myself early on having a regular conversation with students. It would go something like this. The student would say, you know, when I was in high school and involved my youth group and my youth pastor or my discipleship group leader would, would call me regularly and I just I read my Bible more and I prayed more. And since I've been here at college, I've kind of Quit doing all that stuff, and uh, you know it's interesting that they seem to want you to sort of give them a little kind of kick in the kick in the rear to kind of get them motivated to do these Christian things again. But often I would you know respond to that kind of question or that kind of situation, and I would often say, well, wait, wait a second, let's back up a minute. Tell me what what do you think it means to be a Christian anyway? And almost all the time, the kinds of answers I would get to that question were things like, well. You know, I think it means to read your Bible and to, to try to pray and, you know, share the gospel with your roommate and take a stand for Christ in your class. They'd always look down and they'd always say, try to, because they found themselves convicted by their own words. As they would talk, they would say, well, I think I need to do this and I need to do that and I should do this as well. But as they hear those words come out of their mouth. They realize they're not doing that. And I would say, wait a second. This may be part of the problem. I asked you not what do Christians do, which is a fine question, important question, but that's not the question I asked. The question I asked was, what does it mean to be a Christian? Why is it that people who've grown up in church think first and foremost about all the things they're supposed to be doing that they're not doing, but they don't think or seem to think very much about being? Which is to say, Think about what God has done. And you see it in our text here. Paul does not just give us bare commands. He starts out saying, as God's dearly loved children live this way. Forgive one another because you've been forgiven. Living the Christian life is always rooted in what God has done. That's why Paul regularly in this passage commends thankfulness. Thankfulness begins with thinking about what God has done. And the Christian life needs to be lived out of that. Well, as I would talk to these students, I would often find that not only did they have this huge misunderstanding about really the essence of Christianity, that it's first and foremost about what God has done, and then our, life and our lives and our love sort of flows out of that response to what God has done. But I would also find a lot of doubts that they struggled with. And often they would say, you know, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. And I would say, really, why is that? They would say, well, because I don't do these things and I have all these doubts. And as I began to probe that, I began to realize that the songs they were singing had a lot to do with the spiritual problems they were having. Now, this doesn't mean that every song they were singing was bad, but there was a common theme. So many of these students who'd grown up in churches were singing songs that basically were, Lord, I love you, I just want to be with you, and nothing but you every day and every night and every moment. And yet the students singing these songs felt more and more disconnected. They would say, if I'm honest, that's not what I feel like all the time. And I would say, well, have you read the Psalms? Because the Psalms are full of, That kind of stuff. I mean, Paul uh, led us in reading Psalm 22, but Psalm 22 starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these students didn't think that those kinds of songs could be sung by real Christians. I said, well, you know, that's the song Jesus sung on the cross. Maybe your understanding of Christianity is more shaped by the songs... Then you realize, and maybe the songs you're singing, many of them, are lying to you about what the normal Christian life feels like. And at that point, I began to realize pastors, elders, parents, friends need to attend to the kinds of songs we're singing. And what do you know? Paul thought that as well. It's in the Bible. Worship is formative. What we do in worship, the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the stories that we tell, shape us and shape our understanding of what the Christian life feels like. Now, St. Augustine said something very interesting. He said this, He who sings prays twice. He who sings praise twice. What do he mean by that? Well, he meant that there is something about music, something about singing that intensifies whatever we're doing. If it's praise, it's one thing to say, thank you, Lord. It's another thing to cry out in song, thank you, Lord. It's one thing to say, where are you, Lord? It's another thing to sing it. He who sings prays twice, it intensifies lament, and praise. And that's what Paul is saying here in our text. The heart of what he's saying here is for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, it's important that you sing and that you sing about the gospel. Let's look at the text and, I, and I'll help you understand what Paul's talking about here. First thing I, I want to draw your attention to is this idea of peace in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And here's the thing I want you to understand first and foremost. Peace, particularly the peace talked about in this passage, is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. What Paul is saying here is that there is something that God has done which is to trump everything. But it's not a feeling. In other words, when he talks here about this peace, he says, in which you were called in one body. And Paul wrote the Colossians letter at the same time he wrote the Ephesians letter. There's a lot of parallel ideas and language between these two letters. But even backing up in this letter, you see in verse 11, he starts out saying there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised, or uncircumcised, Throughout this little section we looked at, he talks about forgiving, bearing with one another, and you realize he's not writing to a perfect group of people who love each other and get along well all the time. And this points you to something important to understand about the early church. Jews and Greeks hated each other. And yet, when Christ came into the world, he came not just to reconcile us to God, but to each other. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he picks up on these ideas and there he talks about the importance of understanding that what grace is, and this is Ephesians chapter 2, grace is God making dead people alive. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, we can't boast. And he goes from that to say, listen, this is what God's doing. He's reconciling. He's made peace between the two that were opposed to each other. And when he says that in Ephesians, there's, Sort of this double use of this this language there. He means God has made peace between mankind and himself, but also in doing that, he's brought together Greek and Jew. People who hated each other, when they're reconciled to God by what Christ has done, they're also brought together. This is what the Bible means by peace. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Colossians. The peace of Christ is the peace that Christ wrought for us. It's the objective reality. Jesus did something that changed forever the way God relates to His people. We were at warfare with Him. Ephesians says we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we were opposed to God by nature, enemies. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive and reconciled us. So the peace that Paul is talking about here is not just a feeling. It's something real and actual that God has done between us and Him and a peace that brings us together. Don't trivialize the idea of peace by reducing it to a feeling. Now, some of you maybe are old enough to to remember it seems to me in the 70s and the 80s, this was kind of a popular thing to do, at least in sort of youth group and, and young life that I was part of. We used to sing Amazing Grace to the tune of the Eagles, Peaceful, Easy Feeling. Anybody ever done that? Yeah? And I remember thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. I, I, I kind of like that song. I kind of like the Eagles. And here we can sing a hymn to this other tune. It's kind of interesting, you know. We didn't invent that in RUF, you know, or in Double Grace. People have been doing that for a long time. Some of the marriages haven't been as happy as others. Right, but I remember, you know, "Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound," that saved a rich life me. And then you get, and I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Right, and, and equating grace, the gospel, with a feeling. Now, should the gospel produce feelings? Yes, but don't reduce what Paul is saying here to saying just go around all the time with peaceful feelings in your heart. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, let the truth, the reality that God has brought peace where there was warfare between God and man and between man and man, let that rule. Let that triumph. Because the only hope for unity, the only hope for unity in a church or in our world is the gospel that excludes boasting. Because the things that separate us tend to be the things that we boast of. And you see, there's a connection here. There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Why? Because what Christ has done excludes boasting in those things as your identity. We're to be thankful, and boasting and thankfulness can't go together. The more you sit in the reality of what Christ has done in establishing peace, the more thankfulness should well up in your heart and the more boasting will be driven out. Because what do people who were dead and who've been made alive by grace alone really have to boast in? What do you have that hasn't been given to you? What Paul's saying here is that the gospel, the peace that God has brought between God and man must be at the heart of everything. 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 And he says it's to rule. And for the peace of Christ to rule, what does he say next? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So for the peace of Christ to rule, for it to trump what you think about yourself, for it to trump your social conventions and taboos, for it to trump all the things that you would boast in, the word of Christ needs to dwell in you richly. Now this verse actually could be translated The word about Christ. And I think that's probably a better translation. And then it lines up with what Paul is saying in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ, which is the heart of the gospel, the word about Christ and what He's done, dwell in you richly. In other words, we are to be gospel-driven. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. This is one of the passages that shows us this. The gospel, the idea that Jesus has brought peace between God and man, This word about Christ is to rule in us. And to do that, the word must dwell in us richly. And it's worth noting here that when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in verse 16, it's plural. So it's dwell in y'all. And that means not only are we to be gospel driven, our community is to be gospel driven. The word of Christ, the word about Christ is to dwell in us richly. Not just in you individually and me individually. Thus we're to be a gospel-driven community. And then what does he say next? Singing is vital for us to be a gospel-driven community. Singing. Now, if you hadn't read this passage, and I had read part of it, and then I stopped at the end of verse 16 and said, What do you think Paul says is next? In other words... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then you might ask, well, how are we going to do that? What might you say? What might you have written? What might I have written? What might most pastors I know have written? I doubt they would have written sing. They probably would have written preach more. Now, I'm not against preaching. I am a preacher. And I'm sure I preach better than I sing, which really doesn't say much about my preaching, but it says a lot about my singing. But Paul says, sing, sing. And again, as Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. He doesn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in you. He says, let it dwell in you richly. This is not to downplay the importance of of preaching. It's not to downplay the importance of Bible reading. It's not to downplay the importance of catechizing and teaching. People doctrine. I'm for all that stuff. But it is to say... We must attend to the songs that we sing. We need both the lyrics and the music of the gospel. to steal a phrase from my old friend Scotty Smith. Singing. Again, not against teaching people the Bible. I'm not against preaching, memorizing scripture, all those things. But what Paul says here is for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, it's important for you to teach and admonish as you sing to one another. So you sing to one another. And there's so many examples of seeing this point in the history of the church. I want to I tell you a little bit about some of these stories. Because I know when I came to understand Christianity when I was in college and then I began to read more about the history of the church and the great works of God. I, I really heard stories and really, honestly, what I heard was the history of the church is a history of great preachers preaching great sermons. And yet the reality is so many of these spiritual heroes, these people that God has used greatly in the history of the church were very concerned about singing. And singing was a huge part of the work of God. Augustine's famous testimony. Now, Augustine was not a Christian when he went to Milan in Italy. He was a... Uh, really a professional speaker he was interested in rhetoric he was interested in how to speak and there was a famous preacher in Milan in the in the uh, 400s named Ambrose and Augustine thought I want to learn how he is able to speak so persuasively so he decided to go there and listen and just kind of hang around and it's fascinating he later got converted And you maybe have heard the story about how he was sitting in a garden. He heard some children. He couldn't even see them, but he kind of heard them through the hedge saying, take and read, take up and read. They were singing a little children's sing song, game song. But what he heard was pick up the word of God and read. And he talks about God using that in his conversion. But he also says this for you to understand a bigger picture of what happened He says this, and I think this quote is there in the the bulletin. He says, speaking to God, this is a prayer from his book, The Confessions. He says, God, I wept at the beauty of your hymns and canticles. That's another name for song. And was powerfully moved at the sweet sound of your church singing. Listen to this. He says, the sounds flowed into my ears and the truth streamed into my heart. Now, it's interesting, in Ambrose's day, in Augustine's day, there was a lot of heresy going on, particularly a movement called Arianism, which taught that Jesus wasn't fully God, but he was the first created being. And the heretics actually used songs, popular songs, to teach this. And one of the things that Ambrose did was he wrote his own songs to counter the false ideas. But Augustine says those songs were essential. Sound flowed into my ears and the truth streamed into my heart. Now, what's interesting is in 365 A.D., there was a council at a place called Laodicea. At the council, they banned congregational singing. Most people don't know this. In 365 A.D., the official church council said that laymen and laywomen were no longer to sing in church. It seems that maybe some of the songs that were being sung in Ambrose's day had been corrupted and maybe people were singing them in a way that some of the church leaders thought were a little inappropriate. We don't know exactly why, but in 365 A.D., the Council of Lycia said this. No others shall sing in church save only the canonical singers, the trained priests, who go up into the pulpit, into into this area, and sing from a book. So in 365 A.D., the church said laymen were no longer to be singing in church. They were instead to become spectators. Now, we don't know how widely this was enforced in the Western and Eastern church, but basically for a thousand years. Lay people did not sing in church. You imagine? I mean, Paul says you're to sing. And it's vital for you to become gospel-driven and become a gospel-driven community that you sing to one another. And the church leadership said, no, we're going we're to only get the professional singers to sing. It is interesting to reflect on how the devil keeps wanting to get us back to the place where the people are the spectators and the professionals get up here and do a little song and dance. And it's always to the detriment of of the gospel running through a community. It was John Huss who reintroduced congregational singing in the 1400s. Now, Huss did some other things. He began to say, well, people should actually read the Bible when the church leadership was opposed to that. They should be able to take communion, both the bread and the wine. But he also reintroduced congregational singing. Matter of fact, we have the oldest... Um, Hussite hymn book that we have is from 1509, six years before Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. John Huss was burned at the stake, a place called the Council of Constance, which was in 1415, and he died singing a hymn. His followers went up into the mountains to hide from the persecution, and they kept singing those songs to their children. Martin Luther, singing was hugely important in the Reformation. There actually was a a Catholic monk who wrote a century after Martin Luther in the great revival that we call the Reformation. A century later, a Catholic monk said this, Martin Luther destroyed more souls with his songs than with his preaching. Now, when we think about Martin Luther, we think... Oh, he corrected people's doctrine, he preached, he helped people understand things. And yes, that's true. As this quote I put in the bulletin there, he gave the German people the Bible in German. He gave them a catechism to summarize what the Bible taught so they could understand the truth of the gospel. But he also gave them songs to sing in German so that they may hear from God in their own language through his word and then sing back to God in their own language in German. Martin Luther wrote his first hymns when he received word about the first two Lutheran martyrs. Two teenage boys were burned at the stake in Brussels for confessing the gospel. And as they burned, they sang the Te Deum, an ancient hymn of the church. And when word reached Martin Luther, he sat down and composed his first hymn, We don't sing it because it mentions the two boys from Brussels were burned at the stake. And it just doesn't seem to be like the song that you want to keep singing. But it got him going. And then he started to write a few more hymns. He published the first Lutheran hymn book. It had like nine songs in it. Okay? But Martin Luther, in the preface, said, I need more German poets to take up the work that I've started. He said, to noise the gospel abroad. By the end of that year, the second edition of the hymn book came out. had 35 hymns, and it just kept going from there. Probably 100,000 German hymns written in the 16th and 17th centuries. Singing has been used by God over and over and over again. John Calvin, from our own tradition. John Calvin, not a perfect man by any means, but somebody God used greatly. When he arrived in Geneva, they had not been singing for a thousand years. And they weren't singing when he arrived. Now, a guy named William Farrell had brought the gospel, right? The Reformation had come to Geneva. Calvin planned just to, to stay the night and then move on. He wanted to become kind of a scholarly recluse and write books and serve the church that way. But he was persuaded to stay in Geneva. And as he began to take stock of what was going on there, he said, gosh, we got to start singing, he said to the city fathers, Our prayers are so cold and lifeless. Let's try singing. But the city fathers would not let them try singing. They didn't want to introduce singing. We haven't sung for a thousand years. And John Calvin eventually got kicked out of Geneva, went to a place called Strasbourg. In Strasbourg, for the first time, he heard people singing to God in their own language. There's a man named Martin Bucer, who was. Singing German songs. And Calvin finally, what he thought in theory, he heard for the first time. Soon after that, the city fathers wrote to Calvin and pled with him to come back to Geneva. We're sorry, we need your help. And, Martin, and John Calvin said, One of the four conditions for me coming back to Geneva is we have to start singing. He says this We are unable to compute the profit and edification that will arise from trying singing. Except after having experimented. Guys, let's just try it, he says. Certainly as things are, the prayers of the faithful are so cold that we ought to be ashamed and dismayed. The Psalms can incite us to lift our hearts to God and move us to an ardor in invoking and exalting with praises the glory of His name. Listen, people think about John Calvin and his doctrine and his theology, but church music was one of the things that he worked on his entire career. We sang one of the tunes by Louis Bourgeois. All people that on earth do dwell, we sang that tune. which is the tune, you know, to the doxology as well. Louis Bourgeois was one of the greatest musicians in the French court. And Calvin brought him to Geneva so that people might be able to sing the Psalms. The first Genevan Psalter was the greatest, most extensive publishing project in the history of the world up to that time. Then the first couple of years it was translated in nine languages and spread everywhere. I could go on and tell you more and more. Did you know George Whitfield put together a hymn book? Did you know that John and Charles Wesley famously said that hymns were the way that people sort of learn their theology? John Wesley called their hymn book a little body or a little book of practical divinity. It's the way you connect the head and the heart. J.C. Ryle, great reformed hero, put together a hymn book. Charles Spurgeon put together a hymn book. And John Newton. And we sang one of John Newton's greatest hymns. I love Keith and Kristen Getty, um, but they didn't write Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. (laughs) There's a little typo there. Uh, John Newton's hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace and some other hymns that you would know. But this is one of his greatest hymns, and I love verse 4. So what Newton did is he was preaching in a little place called Olney, England. It was a place, it was a uh, pretty poor place. It was mostly people that were lace workers, and at times the government policies of tariffs and whatnot would plunge these lace workers into great poverty. They were largely illiterate, kind of day laborer kind of people. And after Newton had been there for a little while preaching, he realized that he needed to get people singing songs to get the gospel into their heart. And so he would write hymns to go along with his sermon. Eventually, he would turn his scripture passage into a hymn, and then he would explain the stanzas of the hymn to get the gospel into their hearts. Verse 4 of Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder, if you look at it in your bulletin, to me is one of the greatest stanzas ever written in the history of hymnody. Listen to this. Talk about getting the word about Christ... The gospel to dwell in you richly. He says, Let us wonder. Wonder. Now, wonder is not, that goes beyond no. Do you understand? This is dwelling richly. Don't just say, Yeah, yeah, I agree. I believe that. Great. I'm glad you believe that. But I want you to wonder and to glory at this that grace and justice join and point to mercy store. What does that mean? That means the storehouse of mercy. Grace and justice point to it. Together, they come together. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. You know, when when I talk to to people, I talk to students all the time, and ask them, if you ask them, what is it the gospel really about? They generally would tell you, well, it means that Christ died on the cross, therefore I can be forgiven. Say, well, that's half of it. But the Bible says more than that. The Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is righteousness? Righteous means being beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he asks. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he asks. Now let me ask you, is there anybody in this room today who's done everything that God has asked? No. But Christ has. And when our trust, which happens only by grace, is in Him, justice, God looks at us and He doesn't say, well, I guess I'll give Him a pass. No. Justice looks and smiles. Because everything God requires To look at us as beautiful has been done. That's what we need to get into our hearts. That's what we need to wonder about. We need gospel-centered, gospel-driven songs if we would hope to have the gospel, the word about Christ dwell in us richly so that we would become the kind of unified, gospel-driven community God is committed to bringing. We need preaching. We need the word, we need prayer, but we also need songs. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. And we thank you for your songs. And we ask you now to plant and to nurture the seed that's been sown today from your word. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.